This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Got other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Are we too fixated on China? Are we too worried about whether we get a trade deal? Over the weekend, after Florida tweets, the president granted the People's Republic a stay of execution on the tariff increases that were scheduled to go into effect next month. In response, the averages opened strongly this morning. Then they kind of gave up most of their gains. Dow closing up 60 points, S&P advancing 0.12%, NASDAQ climbing 0.36%. So I got to wonder, are there enough good things happening that we can that we can sustain and advance without China. We still don't know if we're going to get a deal and we absolutely don't know when it might happen. But if we can advance without a trade ceasefire, just imagine how high we could go if the White House and the Chinese Communist Party can reach some kind of accommodation. Today, we got some solid evidence that there's enough good happening away from China to justify sticking with this market in order to enjoy what Warren Buffett called the tailwind of American greatness in his annual Berkshire Hathaway letter that came out this weekend. So how do we measure this kind of thing? How do we measure the strength away from China? I think uh, we have to do it individually, tallying up all the potential ways to win with or without a trade deal. So why don't we start with the natural? Why don't we start with the M&A, mergers and acquisitions? This morning, we learned that Danaher, the fabulous health science conglomerate, is buying General Electric's biopharma unit for $21 billion. In one fell swoop, GE has taken all the concerns about the viability that some people are worried about as a going concern, taken them off the table. Sure, there are still serious problems, the bedraggled power division, the expensive long-term care insurance policies that they're on the hook for. But $21 billion goes a long way towards curing those wounds. Bear in mind, this is only the biopharma business. GE gets to keep the gigantic healthcare division. Think heavy medical equipment, MRI, X-ray machines with their magnificent service revenue streams. What a windfall, especially, uh, say, compared to an initial public offering, which is how the old GE would likely have tried to unlock its value. Because the old GE loved complicated, difficult-to-grasp spinoffs that take forever to monetize. At the same time, Danaher, it gets a fantastic life sciences business that will be substantially additive to their earnings next year. Win, win. No wonder both stocks roared today. GE up 6%, Danaher up 8%. That, you know what this says? This deal tells me when you put China to the side, many companies may be worth a lot more than their stocks are currently selling for. The second deal. This morning, Roche, the giant European drug company, paid a 120% premium for Spark Therapeutics, a development stage biotech with a lot of hope and some hype about curing rare genetic diseases many years down the road. But nothing in the way of earnings. Roche paid more than $4 billion for this thing. And while that's no longer all that much in the scheme of things, 
This deal is part of a pattern that I see. Eli Lilly, GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis, they've all made major multi-billion dollar acquisitions in the biotech space, picking up companies that many investors left for dead during the big downturn in the fourth quarter. That kind of consolidation is a real positive for the stock market. It tells us some biotechs may be way too cheap. Oh, and if that's not enough for you, don't forget Barrick Gold, my favorite gold miner run by the brilliant Mark Bristow, who used to run Rand Gold before it merged with Barrick. You know what? The new Barrick is making a, a hostile $17.8 billion all-stock bid for Newmont Mining. I have no idea whether this deal will go through, but once again, this M&A action is a sign that companies may be more valuable to each other than they are to the stock market itself and to these portfolio managers that are so bearish. However the situation plays out, Barrick remains my favorite way to play gold. Which brings me to the second way to win in this market. Holy cow, the financials. They did great today, in particular the big investment banks that have been real dogs of late. But there's a reason Goldman Sachs rallied more than $2 today and at one point was up more than 4 You're getting a premier facilitator of mergers and acquisitions. With a stock that's trading at only a tiny premium to its tangible book value, what you get uh, for the business if you just liquidated everything overnight. Plus, Goldman's a quality stock underwriter with an excellent wealth management group. I think the whole thing, the whole company may be valued too low if we're truly seeing a revival of merger mania, because that's a hugely profitable business for the investment banks, as well as coming deluge of colossal IPOs. That's going to help, too. And remember, it doesn't take a lot of people to be an M&A. The gross margins are fantastic. Third way to win. Well, here's something that people kind of gave up on for a while. Their earnings. Look, I know that the numbers haven't been all that strong this quarter, but I think better than expected. We've had our share of upside surprises. Today, we got two. Carter's, the child and baby apparel company, and Terex, the heavy equipment maker. By themselves, I know they don't mean much, but consider the implications. Carter's can't sell a lot of children's sleeper without department stores doing better, and Terex can't sell a lot of heavy equipment without construction doing better. In that sense, you know what? Those two represent some real good... Then tonight, we got a huge blowout from Kramer Fave Etsy, the terrific online marketplace for handcrafted merchandise. Just a massive top and bottom line beat that sent the stock soaring after the close. At the same time, Tenet Healthcare and Hertz, wow, two that have just been kind of okay, reported big upside surprises. Hey, we're three for three tonight. Plus, a good upside surprise tends to have long legs. Last week, Wayfair, W, the online furniture retailer, delivered a terrific revenue beat, and the stock vaulted $32 in one session, even though it's still far from profitable. Today, it it, it tacked on another $10 for the same quarter. This is the kind of action that growth-oriented money managers love to see. The fourth way to win? Tech. Tech just won't quit here. I know some of the positive action today came from a combination of China-related hope and praise from Warren Buffett. Swiftly, Warren Buffett told Becky Quick that he'd buy more Apple if the stock fell. And we know any agreement with China will make their businesses more additive. Sure. But I'm talking about a whole different group of tech stocks here. Stocks like Facebook, which got a very serious push from Citigroup today on the possibility of real expense control. It's good to see some life out of Fang, isn't it? I mean, it's been a real albatross around the neck of a recent tech rally that's largely been centered on the Cloud Kings and the Semis. The really good news? Both of the Cloud Kings and the Semis were able to advance again, solidifying their status as market leaders. They really powered this rally. Now, I don't want to give the rally in the international industrial short shrift, but I think that was based almost entirely on the possibility of a China deal. So we've got to discount that. That said, oil's been climbing endlessly on Chinese hopes, and today it got slammed down almost two bucks. On any other day, that kind of decline might have brought the whole stock market into the red. 
Today we managed to hang in there, though, and that's a welcome sign for those of us who hate the stupid linkage between oil prices and stock prices. How long can the move last? Isn't that what everybody wants to know? All right, this morning I listened to Brian Sullivan interview a very smart guest who was fretting about how the market was moving up with, ca- with cash being taken out every step of the way. In other words, people are pulling out of the market. To me, that's glass half-empty thinking. I'm going glass half-full here. If this is how the market does without new money, who the heck knows where it will go with fresh capital, the kind of capital that tends to come in after a large move, especially when a big risk gets taken off the table, like the trade war with China. And that boosts it one more time. The bottom line, we got a heck of a lot of ways to win, even without a trade deal. And if we get some kind of arrangement with the Chinese, I think we could have way more upside than most people expect or suspect. Phil in New Jersey. Phil! Booyah, Dr. Kramer. How are you? Oh, man, I don't know. Phil, I got to tell you, I came back fresh and rested from vacation, ready to take your questions. What's going on? I missed you last week. I'll tell you, CNBC, since you're off the air on the weekend, they should have, you should have your own podcast on Saturdays and Sundays, because I kind of go through a withdrawal when I don't have anybody as inspirational as you on the weekend. Uh, thank you, but the only reason guided. I'm inspirational is because I got to recharge my batteries now, and then I've learned that big time. So how can I help? Okay, so back in December, I purchased FedEx. It was starting to go down. I bought like the 205 mark. And then it continued to go down further when they pre-announced bad earnings. Then just recently, the stock started to rebound. Right. And then two weeks ago, they announced that the, uh, the president's COO was going to step down, and the stock went down another 2.5%. So it seems like the stock can't get above that 190 mark. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, should I hold this long term? Yes, or please, I- please hold it. I, and look, this is a great American company. i got to take my page from a... A cue from Warren Buffett today. I don't know if this quarter is going to be that good. I, I know that, you, that really you, United Parcel is doing better. I just don't want you to sell it into this downturn because it's had too many good years, and there could be another one coming. Let's go to Jimmy in Ohio. Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy, a big Baker Mayfield Cleveland Browns. Oh, yeah. From Whoa. Ohio. Wow. I like that spirit even offseason. What's happening? What's the end game with Caesars Entertainment, Carl Icahn? Sounds like Icahn's got his hands deep in the cookie jar. Well, I have They're no idea where his hands are. I, I, I will tell you this. There are, you know, you got a company in Las Vegas Sands, okay? LVS. I mean, this thing, I mean, what is it? it sells with a 5% yield. It's 61 bucks. Really well run. Why not, why not go for that one? Go for some quality. Okay. There are a heck of a lot of ways to win without a China deal. And if we get one, who knows where we can go with it? Well, man, money tonight. It's the surprise insurgency of 2019. I'm pointing out that the rally that wasn't supposed to be happening, it's happening. Then, the one thing Warren Buffett uh, can do to save Kraft Heinz, mm. and it's a company that's helping Lowe's, T-Mobile, and HSBC reinvent the customer experience. And you may have never heard of it. I know, I hadn't known it until I saw it. They rocked on the all-time high list. Don't miss my exclusive with Live Person. And stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com.
the rally that wasn't supposed to happen, the surprise insurgency of 2019? Why, it's the bye, bye, bye. semiconductors. This group had been written off left for dead at the beginning of the year. Too many formerly red-hot chip makers were simply in terrible shape. But at the end of January, we ran an off-the-chart segment where Carolyn Baroden, a.k.a. the Fibonacci queen, predicted that the semis could be on the verge of a monumental breakout. That's exactly what's happening. The semis keep going higher and higher and higher without much in the way of support from analysts. What's driving this move? I think the semiconductor rally has its roots in the contradictions of the previous semiconductor decline. Late last year, the street turned too negative on the group. Particularly during the December bear market, we saw estimate cut after estimate cut after estimate cut. And downgrade after downgrade because of some notable shortfalls. And listen, Texas Instruments, Micron, AMD, and most sharply, NVIDIA. There was a widespread belief that every single end market was slowing, not just the standard weakness in cell phones that we've gotten used to. Two of the great growth trends of our era, gaming and the data center, had seemed to pause, something hardly anyone saw coming. Uh, this was like two back-to-back solar eclipses. Second, the semis were caught in the crossfire of the trade war with China between uh, Apple's dramatic slowdown in the People's Republic and the Chinese government's moves to block takeovers in the industry that were integral to the valuations of stocks like NXP Semi and Qualcomm Broadcom suddenly switched to buying a software company, CA for heaven's sake. And that, that seemed like a fitting coda to the end of the consolidation in the industry that had been driving things. Third, prices for DRAMs and NAND Flash, two key commodity chips, were in free fall. <laughs> For the longest time, DRAMs had stayed buoyant, but they finally joined Flash on the way down and haven't been able to find their footing since. That's a serious parade of horribles. Now, though, it's dawning on people that the sellers may have gotten too negative on the semis. Even when these companies reported weaker numbers, their stocks bounced. While gaming may be weaker, it's clear that the data center is much stronger than the bears believe. Plus, if the trade war goes away, whether we get a good deal with the Chinese or not so good deal, the semis are the group to own. I think there's a lot of gun jumping going on here as buyers try to anticipate a China deal. That's how an Intel could go up on a weaker quarter. The same goes for NVIDIA, which has now bounced substantially from its post-pre-announcement lows last month. Of course, there's no real respite to the decline in the commodity chips. At least their prices, not the prices of the stocks. There's an all-new reason to buy many of the semiconductor stocks away from the DRAM, away from the flash. The 5G man cometh. Hardly a day goes by where we don't hear about the new phones that will support 5G with its lightning-fast downloads that will enable all sorts of new features. Right now, Xilinx, look at that stock, seems to have the strongest 5G lineup, which is why its stock has become one of the best performers of the year. But there are others that could be swept up, too, the most obvious being Skyworks Solutions, which roared after its latest not-so-hot quarter. I think there's much more upside to come there. Everyone I know keeps waiting for a pullback in the semis. Hey, look, we've been waiting for one to buy a lot more lamb research for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionLarsPlus.com club. You hardly ever get a bad pullback, though. And even when you do, the weakness is over in the blink of an eye. I think the semiconductor stocks still have legs, especially if there's any sort of China deal. More important, it's the group to buy every time you hear that trade talks might falter, simply because the chip makers have a lot more going for them than just China or cell phones these days. But that's only just beginning to dawn on the myriad skeptics. Stay with Craig. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. 
That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Remember that old jingle? My baloney has a first name. It's K-R-A-F-T. My baloney has a second name. It's H-E-I-N-Z. Yep, in an ironic twist of fate, Kraft Heinz, the parent company of Oscar Mayer, is full of baloney. <laughs> what else can I say after last week's flabbergasting earnings miss, including a $15.4 billion write-down of its Kraft and Oscar Mayer brands? I actually like these. Yeah, oh, plus there was an SEC investigation. Oh, oh, yeah. And worst of all, how about a staggering 36% dividend cut? Knife, please. I'd like to cut these off by 36%. See how they hold up. Yeah, it's pure baloney. I can think of a more accurate turn of phrase, actually, but the late, great George Carlin taught us that we can't say those words on television. So on Friday, Kraft Heinz lost 27% of its value, and the stock kind of had it coming. Now, I've been warning you for months that the dividend might be in danger, but too many people just didn't want to believe me. Ever since Kraft and Heinz merged in 2015, Wall Street had, let's just say, a lot of respect for the combined company. Some might even call it reverence. Reverence. This business has an incredible pedigree. Heinz was taken uh, private nearly six years ago by 3G. That's a fantastic Brazilian private equity firm. Uh, And Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, they were in there, too. I mean, hey, can you get a, a better pedigree? When Heinz merged with Kraft, they brought in a 3G guy, Bernardo Hees. As the new CEO, Wall Street loved his ability to slash costs almost as much as they loved the fact that Warren Buffett still owns nearly 27% of the company. He used to be on the board of directors until he retired last spring, though he's still represented on the board by two of his most talented lieutenants. But great bloodlines only get you so far. We're picking stocks here. We're not picking ponies. And now Wall Street's reverence for Kraft Heinz Let's just say it's turned into revulsion. Eight different firms downgraded the stock from buy to hold as they finally recognized that management strategy, making big acquisitions and cutting costs just isn't working. The food company's earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, or EBITDA are basically flat over the past five years. When Kraft started trading, when Heinz Kraft started trading, it's a combined entity. Okay, so in other words, they merged together, Kraft Heinz. The stock was at just under 73 now it's at 34 and change. That's a 53% decline during a period where the average food stock's down just 1%. And the S&P 500 is up 34%. In short, it's been a catastrophe, and those numbers don't even tell the full story. If you listen to the conference call, I'm calling it surreal. At no point did management confront anything related to the $15 billion write-down, even though that, that charge cuts to the core issue. Use up old brands like Kraft and Oscar Mayer just don't have the relevancy that they used to. Instead, they blathered on and on about how Kraft Heinz had 4% organic growth, how it still got best-in-class margins. Technically true, but those margins have come down dramatically over the last few years. They used to have the best margins by far. Now the best by come see, come saw. Bernardo Hees talked endlessly about all the white space opportunities, the terrific new line extensions, the so-called consumption turnaround, the distribution gates, the sustainability of the growth, and my favorite, their breakthrough innovation. It was like he called in from an alternate universe where Kraft Heinz reported a stupendous quarter. But no, they delivered a 10-cent earnings miss off a 94-cent basis. 
their full-year revenue forecast was 14% lower than Wall Street expected, and they took a meat axe to that dividend. Wow, that hurts. So what's the problem here? Why can't Kraft Heinz seem to acknowledge it? Simple. Kraft Heinz is a house of old brands that have lost the reason for, uh, for being. They, they've kind of become irrelevant. I mean, even some of their names are relevant. Liquid gold? I mean, isn't that what they call it in Idex Lab? Um, Google it. Um, is it possible to, to breathe new life into a dying brand? Sure. But it's expensive. And remember, the whole plan here was to cut costs. You don't make craft relevant again by spending less money on marketing. Hence the need for one of the largest impairment charges in history, a recognition by management, indeed, if not in word, that these brands simply can't bounce back the way Heinz expected when they acquired Kraft almost four years ago. But that's, that 15.4 billion hit was just from Kraft and Oscar Mayer. What about the other brands? Is this really the era of Jell-O? A miracle Whip? Kool-Aid? Stovetop? Shake and bake? Do you really want to bet on Crystal Light, a Cool Whip, Country Time, Bovita, or Maxwell House, which is now rumored to be on the block after missing out on the whole revolution in non-industrialized coffee? When I hear these brands, I always think of one thing. I think about the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's how dated they are. Growing up, my friend Frankie had a fallout shelter in his house. He's down the block. And it was stocked with all of these brands because they'd still be edible for ages after nuclear apocalypse. In fact, the only thing that wasn't craft may have been uh, Chef Boyardee from ConAgra. That's another indestructible food stuff. But nowhere, not even in one small nook or cranny, does Kraft Times address that its products are mostly pantry brands from the center aisle of the supermarket, and young people have a serious aversion to this stuff. Millennials are so busy in hurting the earth that they'd much rather buy food that's fresh and organic. At least they, when they can afford it. I think that's a major reason why Kraft Heinz and the frozen food pr- producers have so much less pricing power these days. As people under 30 only buy this stuff because it's so cheap. So the company's up against an unholy trinity here. They need to spend to support the brands. Their raw costs are going up, something mentioned repeatedly on the call, and the consumer's turning against them. What about all those glorious positive management uh, positives that management listed uh, to distract us, maybe, from everything that's going wrong? Look, I think Kraft Heinz can boost its sales, but by cutting price. And, and then to what end? They'd be robbing Peter to pay Paul, sacrificing their earnings on the altar of revenue growth. Just listen to what Warren Buffett had to say this very morning. They may have made a mistake in terms of working. I shouldn't say they. We may have made a mistake in terms of uh, trying to push hard against certain of the retailers and finding out that we weren't as strong as we thought they were. Ouch. But here's a question. If Kraft Heinz is so troubled, why did so many analysts adore the stock going into the quarter? One word, Unilever. Kraft Heinz saw its stock fall 10 points from 87 to 97 when it made a hostile takeover bid for Unilever about two years ago. At the time, the consensus was that this $143 billion deal could boost their earnings by as much as 25%. Kraft Heinz withdrew the bid when Unilever's management made a fuss, and Warren Buffett, with his gigantic position in the company, refused to support a hostile takeover. However, the analysts loved the idea of a consolidator on the prowl looking for the next big acquisition, and they were stunned when Kraft Heinz was so brutally rebuffed. It's been downhill ever since. But many of the analysts hung on, betting there would be another deal. 
Now Kraft Heinz is doing nothing to quell the takeover talk. They even had the gall to say they slashed the dividend in part to raise a war chest to prepare for industry-wide consolidation. But Wall Street doesn't want to hear it anymore. The company's last big deal was a debacle. The balance sheet's hideous, and they can't even get their own house in order. The bottom line, I am glad I warned you to avoid Kraft Heinz back in November, precisely because I feared a dividend cut. And you know what? I still fear a nasty dividend cut. We may not even be done here. Um, The yield is the same, uh, 4.7%, but the payout, it's much lower. Look, anything can bounce. Well, almost anything. But uh, seriously, Kraft Heinz is is a trouble company. And unless Warren Buffett wants to buy the whole thing, and I do seem to throw cold water on this morning, I can't think of anything that could turn this story around. Well, coming to the quick. Hey, why don't we go to Hugo in Ohio, please? Hugo. Hello, Jim. Hugo. Uh, Buckeye Bullion to you. Love your show. Oh, thank you so much, man. What's going on? Well, I want to talk to you about McCormick, the spice company. Sure. Um, the stock seems to go up when the market's going down. It yeah. Goes up, it goes, and I can't figure it out. And I'm wondering how they're fitting in with this whole Kraft Heinz tobacco. Well, you know, it's funny. I happen to like the company very much, and I love the acquisition. You remember they did that gigantic uh, acquisition of Frank's. I don't know. I keep going to my web. I keep going to my supermarket. keep looking for this particular label. I can't find it. But in the end, what happened is I think the Walmarts of the world crunched their margins. I remember going to Grand Isle, Louisiana, and seeing a bottle of French's mustard, you know, the one that looks like very natural, organic, yellow, and it was for a buck. Well, how do you make a money, money selling mustard for a buck? At least these guys have great Poupon. That's probably my favorite brand that they have. Um, let's take uh, Michael in Nebraska. Michael. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question about Coca-Cola, ticker KO. Sure. And I was wondering if uh, now would be a good time to invest because of the recent stock drop. Additionally, would the stock be good to hold long term considering that last September there were rumors that Coke was exploring CBD-infused drinks and the prior year they had talks with Aurora Cannabis? Well, you know what? First, they denied point blank. James Quincy denied point blank that he's interested in cannabis. Uh, Second, the quarter was a disappointment. So I think it's kind of in the penalty box. I would not go there. The best thing that's going for it is that Warren Buffett's in there. And maybe these days that's not enough. Nineteen forty-seven. What's the vintage year? We have times. It's baloney! It doesn't even spell it right! And I just got back from Italy! I can't think of anything that could turn this troubled company around. All right, much more mad money up. How can conversational commerce change the way we interact with companies on a daily basis? I'm talking to the CEO of Live Person to see how it's leading the charge. Then, there's nothing common about this market, but could an investment in Zendesk offer some much-needed breathing room? And lawyer calls, rapid fire, and tonight's edition of The Lightning Round! So stay with... Kramer! All right, let me ask you a question. When you use one of those online chat programs for customer service, do you ever get that kind of sense that you're not actually talking to another human being? Guess what? You probably aren't. Having 
stocks will humans handle all these service and support requests would cost a fortune. So more and more businesses are turning to artificial intelligence. They let the machines handle the most commonly asked questions, and then humans step in to handle the challenging stuff. Take the aptly named Live Person, symbol LPSN, which uses artificial intelligence to help its clients deal with customer relations management. Live Person provides what they call conversational commerce. They make it possible for businesses to communicate with their customers via text message or Facebook messenger or any text-based app without hiring an army of customer service reps. Now, Live Person just reported last week, and it looks really good here. The stock surged on the news. Can it keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Rob LaCassia. He and Rob is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Live Person. Learn more about how his company's doing, where he's headed. Okay, Mr. Mr. LaCassia, welcome to Mad Money, and what a great quarter you had. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you having me here. I want to say, first of all, it's, it's I've been 19 years uh, running a public company. And so, uh, like, I think about being on this show and everything and all the work. Uh, my low was seven cents a share in the 2001, and today we're at our heights. So it's a great day to be on Mad Money and um, you know, share the vision of where this company's going. Well, you're very kind. Uh, we're thrilled to have you because you've got accelerating revenue growth. Uh, you've got a great story, and I want to get right to it. Uh, a lot of times we get to uh, we, we go to sites, so we we interact with pe- with people who are actually so smart we can't get they get it right. Your artificial intelligence actually isn't just something that substitutes for people. I think it's often better than people. Yeah, and when we look at what we're trying to do, I mean, the bottom line is that. You know, we're making phone calls in 2019 to the, these banks and telcos to get customer support, and we're on hold, and we're pressing one and two and three, and, and this is ridiculous. And so what we really believe is that you should be able to have a conversation with an automated bot or with a human being. And that's the stuff we power for, like T-Mobile and Citibank and now Delta Airlines. And I know you love T-Mobile and John Ledger, and you know, two years ago, I reached out to John and said, we got a new way to do customer care. And we've just been working with them. They pulled out that voice technology, that press one or two or three. It's called an IVR. And like, we're powering that stuff. That's the future. Like, my kids are not going to be calling. They're going to be messaging. They're going to be messaging like they message their friends to a brand. And that's the stuff we're bringing to these large brands today. Well, I think that you got to put a number to it because you've got 270 billion calls. How much does that cost the system, so to speak? It, it's it's not it's 1.2 trillion dollars right now is running through the global economy for phone calls. A big bank in the U.S. would spend one to two billion dollars taking your phone call, and you know you think it sucks, you think it's terrible, but they have to put all that in because it's old technology. So that 1.2 trillion is sitting there. That's analog voice calls. That's got to get digitized. I mean, e-commerce is like $2 trillion, and so right below that is conversations, and we call that conversational commerce. And that's what we need. We have to have conversations with humans to buy things, to get customer support. You can't just go to a website and click around. You have to actually ask questions, and that's what we really power with our platform, with these really large brands, even small ones, but the really large ones is where we're doing the really exceptional work. Well, Robert, I've got to tell you, when I first heard about this, I said, well, wait a second. What happens if Alexa comes after you with Amazon? But you've hired Alex Spinelli, I mean, as global CTO. He ran the development team for Alexa, didn't he? Yes, and, and you know, we, we got a lot of that group joined us because, you know, we're sitting on this gold mine of conversational data, 60 million conversations we generate on our platform. And if you're into AI and machine learning, 
and you're a scientist, that's the data you want to use to sort of power uh, artificial intelligence and bots. And the interesting thing is you worked at Amazon, you're just working on for Amazon. We're out there powering thousands of brands in the world, and Alex joined us and a bunch of other people recently because they're like, we can take a Delta Airlines, a T-Mobile, uh, you know, a Citibank, and power the New York Times and help power these companies into the AI revolution. And that's what we're really doing. And that's why we were getting this great talent. So can you uh, go over, for instance, let's just pick one that I didn't think of as having customer service, so to speak. What do you do for Dunkin' Brands? So for Dunkin' Brands, like right now, actually through Alexa, through a front end, we can basically make orders and reorder uh, donuts. You could do things. So like there's a whole other way we can use those front ends to power that. I'll tell you something more exciting is I know you like the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, we're actually powering a thing called Brew to You. So from your seat, you can actually order a beer through Messenger, through a bot. So you, you hit a code, you message, I want a beer, I want a hot dog. You pay with Apple Pay, instantly it comes to your seat. And that's conversational commerce, making life easier right there in the stadium at Philadelphia Phillies. Well, that and Bryce Harper, of course, would make me very, very excited. One last question. When I think about your company, I said, why aren't they making a lot of money, which you're not yet? But then I read your, uh, your conference call. It looks like that you've got a spend build out to meet demand, but that could level off and you could have some margin expansion ultimately. Yeah, I mean, look, we from 2001 have been making money. And recently, I just said, we got to bet big. I mean, this, the demand right now, our pipelines like doubled over the last couple of months. Every brand in the world is going to want to do conversational commerce. We back in Apple Business Chat, that's iMessage, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Alexa, Google Home. Every brand wants to use those front ends and, and they want to get connected their, to their organizations. They need a platform like ours. So the demand in the market, and that's why I'm even here at Mobile World Congress, it's like I'm talking to all the telcos here about how do we put like a, an AI assistant inside of the telephone so that you can basically on a mobile device say, I want to buy a car. And you can actually talk to someone about buying a car, actually buy that car through that device. So it's going to be everywhere. And we're really powering that. So look, we got to spend now and we're really about accelerating the growth right now. And that's why I'm really after doing it. Like I said, I bet long term always with this company and right now, but we're betting for something very big. And that's why I went big into spending right now on sales, on technology. But once again, we can make up that margin expansion as we really grow the revenues of the company. Well, congratulations. It, it, it's so great that it worked. I mean, you've been at it. You've been in the vineyards and you've been toiling and it's all paid off. That's Robert Lacasio. He's the founder and CEO of Live Person. I think it's a pretty darn exciting company. They have money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round! Let's wrap up one, two, Mr. And then the light round's over. Are you ready, Ski? That is time for the light round! Let's we'll start with Mark in Wisconsin. Mark! Jim, uh, buy, sell, or hold on uh, Deutsche Bank? Oh, boy, you know, you need a recovery in, in Europe. I was over in Europe last week. I've got to tell you, you're, you're not going to see that as long as China is uh, not doing that well either. I'm going to have to take a pass on Deutsche Bank. I, I don't want you to buy it here. Let's go to Fred in Illinois. Fred! Jim, big time booyah from Calumet City, Illinois, home uh, of the Blues Brothers. How are you? There you go. There you go. What's up? <laughs> I'm looking for your take on Trimble, Inc. Trimble's good. Gorman and Trimble both continue to impress. I keep thinking they're going to go down. They don't. Let's go to Naveed in California. Naveed. 
Jim, how are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? Great. I just want to thank you for everything you've done. Uh, when I was eight years old, I watched your first ever episode of Mad Money back in 2005, and I've been watching almost every single episode ever since. And I actually just graduated from college past December. So thanks for all that you do for us. Oh, man. Thank you. You just made my day. You know, back from vacation, refreshed, but nothing like what I just heard. Thank you. What's up? So I want to ask you about the beautiful Sarepta Therapeutics. I've owned this stock since 2013 before person got approved, and now with them now having data tomorrow, as long as with earnings, do you think I should take profit you, you or know, should I hold no, the long term? You no, know, this is one where it is, it's such a wild trader. Uh, I, I suggest you just sit on your hands on this one, uh, because I do think that no matter what happens, this is the kind of company that's getting bought up by people. I mean, Sarepta is a good company, so let's just keep sitting on your hands. Uh, let's go to Brad in Michigan. Brad! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. You got me jumping around my office right now. I'm All excited right. to I talk to you. <laughs> Just wanted to get your thoughts on Foot Locker. I, I know like they got Foot Locker, an upcoming but I like for- Nike even more. Nike's got the China angle. Foot Locker is a very good company, but I don't want to be in the mall. Let's go to Randy in California. Randy. Hey, Booyah, Jim, and thank you for your help from Long Beach, California. Oh, thank you. Quick question. I've been building a position in my IRA on Cisco the last three months. So I'm up about 13% plus dividends on it. Where do I go with this now? I want do you to I... hold on to it. Chuck Robbins is building a long-term winner here. I think there's multiple years ahead. I think that that conference call is one of the best this year. And I think there's no reason to do anything other than to hold tight with Cisco. I hope it comes in so you can buy, buy some buy, more, buy. like the Travel Trust. Let's go to John in Tennessee. John. Honorable James J. Kramer. Oh, thank you. It's been house of pain since they gave forward guidance last week. Is CBS giving you pause? I was to bring very it to the disappointed. Larry Merlo should come on the show. That was horrible. Okay, it was terrible. Uh, my bad. I believed. My bad. I, I look. I down here. It's okay. But geez, it was at seventy last week, and I was away. This is a company that should be doing much better and has not really done as all it should. To, it, it's done ill-advised disclosures, the way I would look at it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I have a confession to make. Whenever I see a fantastic stock that's winning without me, hey, like Green Book won last night, a small part of me, it dies inside. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I have a bad case of stock market FOMO, fear of missing out. And I've missed out on a couple of them here. FOMO is not a strategy, though. And it can be incredibly hazardous to your stock health and your wealth. You see, a stock that's on fire, it's only natural to want to jump on the bandwagon. But that's not necessarily the right move. By the time something red hot comes to your attention, there's a good chance the easy money has already been made and you've missed the move. Sometimes all you can do is keep your bat on your shoulder and wait for the next pitch. Or to put it another way for our younger viewers, stocks are not like Pokemon. If you feel like you've got to catch them all, you're doing something wrong. You can't catch them all. You shouldn't even try. Which brings me to one that I saw when I was out in San Francisco recently. I saw the signs everywhere. Brings me to Zendesk. Zendesk. Yeah. The cloud-based customer relations software company that trades under the symbol Zen. 
Yeah, when you miss something, you don't feel all that zen-like. There is nothing zen, though, about Zendesk stock, which has nearly tripled over the past two, two years. It's doubled in the last 12 months. Give you a 35% gain since the beginning of 2019. Regular viewers know that I've been a relentless supporter of the cloud stocks, especially the enterprise-oriented software-as-a-service names like Salesforce.com and ServiceNow, Workday, Splunk, Adobe, Coupa, New Relic, and Okta, among others. When we talk about the cloud kings and the cloud princes, most of them fall into this category. Now, we've had some phenomenal gains in this space, but somehow we, somehow we, we miss Zendesk. Even though it's become one of the best-performing cloud stocks. Now, I wish, of course, that I'd nailed this one, but other than giving it my blessing in the lightning round last May, huh, I've never really addressed it. In short, we've missed a huge move. Zendesk came public at $9 in May of 2014, and the darn thing hit a fresh all-time high today. It's up roughly 780% from its IPO price. How's that done? How's your index fund done versus that? I think part of the reason this one flew under the radar screen, though, is that after an initial rally right out of the gate, going up to the high 20s, the stock did next to nothing for the following three years. However, as much as I wish that I'd recommended Zendesk in the past, that doesn't tell us what to do now. Remember, we don't care about where stocks come from. We care about what it's going to. So let me walk through my process for evaluation of a company with a smoking hot stock. I'll make this simple. I think Zendesk is a great company with a great story. Is it a great stock, though? I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't really recommend it up here. It's running up too far too fast. You'd be chasing if you buy it at these levels, and you know I hate to chase. Plus, there are other companies in the same industry uh, with cheaper stocks, like ServiceNow and Salesforce. I know those seem very expensive, but I think they're safer bets. Now, while we're talking zen and the art of portfolio maintenance, I would absolutely endorse buying Zendesk if the stock got slammed as part of a market-wide pullback. And that can happen, but you can't chase this one. Got to let it come to you. What makes me say that? Okay, first, you need to understand the positives. And there are a ton of them. Zendesk provides cloud-based software that helps other businesses handle customer support. Hey, we got one of those today. We got a lot of those, right? Whenever you call in with a problem, their platform makes it easier for the support staff to answer your questions in a timely manner, either on the phone or via text-based chat online. They've also been expanding into new areas, including data analytics and Salesforce automation. We know there's tremendous demand for these services. If companies want to stay relevant, they need to embrace digital and do it right. Making customer support uh, less agonizing, that's a huge plus when it comes to retaining customers. Now, after some initial turbulence, Zendesk stock caught fire in 2017 as their growth rate stabilized and then accelerated last year with the company turning a surprise profit. Some of that's simply because this industry is growing like crazy, but a lot of it comes down to sales, Zendesk, fantastic sales and execution, which has been terrific. Basically, they've transitioned from being dependent on a single flagship product, Zendesk Support, to being a more diversified company with so many different offerings that they've begun to bundle them together and sell them as a suite. They've also got an excellent relationship with Amazon Web Services, the number one operator in the cloud infrastructure space. Like the rest of the cloud stocks, this one got clobbered during the fourth quarter and then came roaring back in the new year. The latest leg of Zendesk's rally started a little less than three weeks ago when the company reported a truly blowout quarter. They delivered a terrific top and bottom line beat, awesome revenue guidance for both the next quarter and the full year. Going into the quarter, Wall Street didn't know whether the company could pull off its recent expansion into new areas like sales staff support. I mean, that's that Salesforce's backyard. Now it's clear that Zendesk has been successful with 41% revenue growth. That's one of the best 
growth rates that we follow. These results propelled the stock from 68 to 72. It just keeps climbing around to 79 as of today. So then why am I so hesitant? It's such a great story. Why, why am I so hesitant to recommend it up here? Well, there's the valuation issue. More on that in a second. But there's one big thing that worries me about the fundamentals. Zendesk is now competing directly against Salesforce.com and directly against ServiceNow, two titans of the enterprise software space for a chunk of the sales support business. Maybe there's enough room for everyone. But it's easy to see these huge, incredibly well-run rivals become a problem somewhere down the line. Mostly, though, Zendesk has run up so much that I feel like a chump buying at these levels. You can't really value the stock based on earnings because it's barely profitable. It trades it, are you ready? 120 times next year's earnings estimates, which seems super expensive, but doesn't actually tell you much. So like with so many of these cloud stocks, we need to judge Zendesk on a price-to-sales basis. And even there, it ain't cheap, selling for 8.2 times next year's sales estimates. Nosebleed. Now, I want you to compare that to Salesforce. That trades at 47 times next year's earnings estimates and 6.5 times next year's sales. So if you're buying Zendesk here, you're paying a major premium for its versus Salesforce and a slight discount to ServiceNow, which I regard as the best of breed operators among the already excellent cloud kings, which begs the question. Why would you want to buy Zendesk over Salesforce or ServiceNow? There's only one answer. It's a smaller company with a somewhat faster growth rate. But honestly, it's not that much faster. ServiceNow grew at a 30% clip last quarter and not too far below Zendesk's 41% revenue growth. The thing is, Zendesk is also a higher risk stock than either Salesforce or ServiceNow. So I'd feel like a dope recommending it up here. And remember, we've been up for weeks now. Weeks. This is not where you come in and start buying. Here's the bottom line. Yes, I wish I'd spotted Zendesk sooner. But after the stock's monster run of late, I think we need to just admit that we missed it and we got to move on. That said, Zendesk is a great company. And if we get a major pullback in its stock, you have my blessing to pounce. Bye, bye, bye. Stick with Kramer. I want to congratulate Becky Quick once again. Just a fabulous morning with Warren Buffett. I don't know about you, but I continue to learn from this man and continue to learn from the insightful questions that Becky asked and then didn't produce these fantastic answers. What can I say? It is a clinic every year, and every year I look forward to it. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.